Let's pray. He who is mighty has done a great thing. You, O Lord, have lifted our shame. Holy is your name. Your word says that the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. Father, we pray that you would quicken, quicken our hearts, open what needs to be opened, cut those who need to be cut, soften the hearts that need to be softened, awaken those that need awakening. Grant us a desire for faithful obedience that we would walk in accordance with your word. Speak, Lord, and cause us to hear that we may honor you in our lives. That's our desire this morning. We pray this for your name and your glory alone. Amen. James chapter 2. Please open your Bibles to James 2. It's been a long while since I've been in the pulpit, I said to my wife, I feel like a novice who's just starting to preach. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that James provides us with two theological reasons why we should avoid discrimination. Number one is found in verse 5. God elects. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? God's electing love is reason number one why we must refuse to discriminate against God's people. The second reason, which we will look at, Lord willing, next week, is God's Law, verse 8 through to 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So he returns to the sin of partiality from verse 8 through 13, and relates it to the law. Those are the two theological reasons James gives why Christians must avoid discriminating. God chose us, and God says so. That's the two reasons. But this morning we will focus on the implications of partiality. We will see the absolute absurdity of short-sighted cultural sensitivity. Since God chose, since God elects, and since God gives the rights to the kingdom to his people, we therefore have absolutely no right to prefer anyone over God's people. 
we have no right to show any kind of favoritism to anyone outside the realm of God's community. Now that's a sweeping statement. And I will prove this morning that this is what James is talking about. If God is the sovereign one who brings sinners into fellowship with him by means of his divine will, through the cross, in the Son, there is therefore no one more important than God's community. The problem of the believer's discrimination is not foreign to the New Testament. The church in Corinth, for instance, had a problem of discrimination. In the first chapter, Paul says, some make associations with certain people, certain groups, certain cliques were formed within the church. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, oh no, 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 I am of Christ. I am much better than all of you. These groups or associations caused damage to the unity within the church. They were those who had the freedom to eat foods sacrificed to idols. And they were those who could not. Although this could have been an opportunity or an occasion to demonstrate love and patience with one another, instead it caused more rivalry. We are of the clan who can eat. We are strong. We are of the group who do not eat, for we are weak. Causes a split. Another problem was around the Lord's table. There were those who were rich and flaunted their wealth, came with all their, their food to the Lord's table, and they had a meal upon a meal. And the poor came, and all they wanted was a little crumb from the rich man's table. This also caused division. These were Christians discriminating against Christians, which causes division. Then, closer to the time of this writing, there was the book of Acts. In chapter 6, if you remember, there were those Hebrew women who were given resources while the Hellenistic women were rejected in the church. There was discrimination. Some felt rejected while others were favored. The sin of partiality is not foreign to the life of the New Testament nor to those in the Old Testament. However, there is a particular danger to the bond of unity amongst God's people and the common care, meaning the, 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 the love that we show to one another, when the church discriminates against God's people by choosing the world. There is a greater problem that damages church unity. And it is when saints choose the side of ungodly people. You say, but that's not possible. Why on earth would we ever choose the side of ungodly people over God's people? Well, this is when sinners become more important than saints. That's a problem. 
What James is dealing with here is the unity-destroying nature of discrimination. And I'm not talking about discrimination of brothers against brothers or sisters against sisters or one group of people against another group of people within the church. This is discrimination when we choose ungodly sinners over God's people. Where they disclose distinctions, defamation, or making some Christians feel insignificant. Does this ring a bell? Just based on the color of their skin. All these destroy the bond of peace and the practical demonstration of Christ's love in the community of faith. I've been thinking about this for a long while. You you know that I, I don't always provide particular application, but think about this. There are Christians who say, well, I, I, I don't agree with the actions of BLM, but I do agree with the sentiment of BLM. I agree that there are those, for instance, in woke system, I call it wokery, in the woke belief system, that there are those who are of a paler skin type that must apologize for the mere fact that they are pale. They have less melanin. Is it less melanin? In their skin. That, 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 must, that must be a problem for us because the majority of us are darker skin. There are those who are aligning with external forces saying, yes, yes, I've been uh, disadvantaged all my life. All those people who are of a paler skin must come apologize to me for all the disadvantages that I've been through. This is a danger to the church. Why? Because we have chosen the side of the enemies of the cross to shame Those whom God has removed shame from. We just sang that. You removed our shame and yet we want to shame God's people for the fact that God has made them the way that they look. In our passage, we will see that there are three rhetorical questions which highlights the danger of choosing the unbelieving world over believers. Having established that the poor in the context of the book of James are Christians, it's not the poor of the world, these are Christians, though they may be economically poor, but they are Christians. Having established that reality, we see that James has in mind a close union between the poor, the Christians, in the church. They must share a bond that they do not share with the unbelieving world. Although the tables are turned today. These rhetorical questions form a unit that provides us with both a positive and a negative reason why believers should not choose unbelievers or an unbelieving philosophy over Believers, positively, you see it in verse 5. There's a rhetorical question here, and the answer to this question is yes. 
Has God not chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith? The poor there is Christians. The answer is yes. Negative, negatively. The unbelieving world do not care about you or your Savior. That is verse 6 and 7. As we begin, there is a statement of reality that separates these two groups of questions. And it is found in the beginning of verse 6. Read with me. But you have dishonored the poor man. Honor the rich, the ones who oppress you, and the ones who drag you into court. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? I have three points this morning, and I'm going to make the first point, the lengthier point, um, as clear as I can, and then the other two are pretty short. Firstly, what I want to point out is choosing the ungodly dishonors God and his people. Choosing the ungodly over the godly dishonors God and his people. Look at the beginning of verse 1. But you have dishonored the poor man. James indicts his readers with a strong tone of disapproval. This is emphatic in the Greek text. The, The word you is actually first in the sentence and places a dramatic emphasis and intensification on the hearers. You, but you, is a sense. You have dishonored the poor. The word man here is implied. It's not actually in the original, but it is deduced from the greater context, which, which is fine. But there's a contrast here. Look at verse 5 again. God chose the poor to be rich in faith. God chose to bless the poor. Now look at verse 6. But you, I should say, you, but you have dishonored the poor man. God chose them and bestowed upon them a position that is irremovable. But you oppose the work of God. So in verse 5, God gives access to the realm, through the realm of grace into the inheritance in which they have their life. And in verse 6, Christians dishonor those whom God have chosen. How did they dishonor the poor? Well, verse 2 through to 4 is a hint. If a a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in this context is a believer in shabby clothing also comes in and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions, take note of this, among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You have chosen the ungodly over those whom you have kinship with. What does it mean to dishonor in verse 6? But you have dishonored the poor man. The word dishonor means to deprive someone of honor or respect. 
to cause to shame. This is an especially grievous offense in the strongly honor shame uh, culture of the Semitic and Greco-Roman societies. It is to cause someone disgust and disgrace on a public level. This is more than a mere insult. This is to treat somebody shamefully. And in that culture, honor is treated more highly than riches. You can be poor and still have honor. You can walk with pride, if you will, in your society if you have not been shamed. But if you have been shamed, everyone looks on you with that shame. You lose acceptance in the eyes of society. Let me give you a biblical illustration. Remember Mary and Joseph? When Joseph found out that she was pregnant, what did he want to do? Put her away quietly. Why? So as not to shame her. So rather do it in a private way so that she does not have shame before other people. So to be dishonored is to have a stain on your character. A stain which stings. You cannot function in a proper way if you are dishonored publicly. In Acts chapter 5, verse 14, uh, sorry, 41, Peter and John were told, do not speak in the name anymore. They were left, sorry, they left the congregation, not the church, the, the meeting together before the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. And they counted themselves, take note of this, worthy to suffer shame for Christ. That's our word there. Worthy to suffer a character slam for the name of Christ. To not be able to function in a normal way because of Christ. This is why so many Christians were poor in the New Testament. Because they were shamed for His name. To suffer dishonor for his name. Not before Christ, but before their culture. They did not care that the world thought less of them or hated them for being faithful to the commands of Christ. Isn't that what Peter says? Well, you judge. Should we honor God or you? Our responsibility is to God. So you go ahead. Shame us. So different to what we are experiencing today. Christians are more concerned about what the world thinks about us than what God wants us to do. James deals with a similar problem in this community. The verbal sense here of dishonor indicates that the church, these Christians, were not forced into the action of, of dishonoring them, but they acted willingly in this way. You chose to dishonor on an ongoing basis those who are God's people. So God chose and blessed. He bestowed honor on them, but you, you shamed and degraded the very people that God honored. James highlights the fact that they deferred to the very people who hate God. In other words, you were dead set on pleasing people and not your Father in heaven. You will see that in verse 8 and following. 
God's actions for the poor is set against the believer's action in this community of faith against the poor. They chose to honor the ungodly, which dishonors God and God's people. That's the weight. This is similar to making more of governmental laws than the commands of Christ. This is likened to when the church abandons what they should do to following what the government commands them to do. This is equal to when a church distances themselves from those who are uncompromising in preaching the gospel and align themselves with those who hate God. There's a podcast that I listen to quite frequently and one of the men says, there are those in the church of Jesus Christ who are quote-unquote tone police. I know, I know you love the Lord and I know you want to preach the gospel, but, but my goodness, tone down your voice. My goodness, do not mention the H word, hell, for those of you who don't know. Do not call people sinners. It will chase them away. You've got to love them to glory. Mm, really. God's wrath was poured out on the cross while loving undeserving sinners. Don't tell me about covering up the wrath of God when he demonstrates it. For while we were yet sinners... Christ died for what? The ungodly. That's what God says in his word. So don't repackage the word of God to make it palatable to sinners. James condemns any act where God's people are rejected, caused to be shamed or maligned for the sake of the ungodly. By honoring the rich in this context, they shamed the poor. What we need to understand here is that shame in this context was a weighty reality for them. It was greater than losing one's wealth. To, face, uh, a, uh, to lose face in society was equal to being literally economically poor. There was no greater shame to be publicly dishonored. What this church did was they treated God's people no different to how the world treated them. They abandoned them. Biblical Christianity is not culturally determined. This church felt the pressure from outside. Remember, We are in Acts chapter probably 7 through to 9, historically. Church fleeing because of persecution. They were in Jerusalem. Now they are in synagogues because they are no longer in Jerusalem. They are removed away from their hometown. The easiest way to find favor with the reigning authorities is to what? Abandon those who preach the gospel. To find favor with the world. Biblical Christianity is not culturally determined. 
Biblical Christianity is defined by its obedience to Christ. It does not bow to cultural norms or pressures, which is what is taking place here. The norm in that day is to honor the rich and dishonor the poor. That was normal. James says, you, yes, you in this church, dishonor God's people by honoring the rich, the ungodly. James shows the nature of what takes place when Christians chooses the side of unbelieving sinners over God's people. The implication here is that Christians should know better. They willingly chose to honor the ungodly because of the desire to seek favor with men. There's quite a few different suggestions as to why they did this, and one of the reasons, probable, they, they wanted to escape persecution. They wanted to escape their trials and their suffering. So instead of dishonoring the ungodly, they chose to dishonor the godly. By seeking favor with men, they inadvertently oppose God and dishonor those whom God honors. Today, sadly, Christians are being betrayed by Christians. I've heard of stories where people have gone to church and reported on their church for, guess what? Not wearing masks. Not sanitizing, not social distancing. We are all in trouble. In choosing the ungodly wicked over God's people, we outrightly oppose God. So firstly, choosing culture over church dishonors God and his people. Secondly, choosing the ungodly shows a lack of wisdom. Second rhetorical question is also in verse 6. Are not the rich ones, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? James asks, really? Do you not get this? There's an increase of the level of intensity at this stage. He he, he turns the question back on themselves. You discriminate against your own, but are you not being discriminated against? In other words, guys, it's the rich who oppress you. I use the rich and ungodly synonymously because that's the context in which it is used in the book of James. They oppress you. Take note of that. Are not the rich ones who oppress you? Not the poor. You. You are part of the people being oppressed. The Greek word here for oppress means to exploit, to dominate someone. In the Septuagint, it's it's used of those who, who use brutal rage against widows, orphans, and the poor. Oppress in, in, in its tense or the way that it's being used here pictures this as a continual practice. This is what the rich ordinarily do against the Christians. In other words, they are continually oppressing and exploiting you, yet you choose them over your own. 
Turn over to Acts chapter 10. The only other place that this word is found is in Acts chapter 10, verse, I think it's verse 38. Yeah. I'm going to read from verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Amen. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism of John, proclaimed, after the baptism of the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus, uh, sorry, Jesus of Nazareth, with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were, what's that word? Oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and made him appear to all, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. Interesting correlation of verbiage here in this passage. But the word that, is interest, uh, that we are interested in is that word oppressed by the devil. James says, it is the rich that is oppressing you. They are emissaries of the enemy doing his work. Yeah, the, the ungodly not only cause shame, but exploit and cause harm to those who belong to God. And yet there were those in this church who aligned themselves with these ungodly people. Just a word on the rich here. This is not the rich in James chapter 2 that we are thinking of in our day. This is not just the wealthy. It's not the, the rich and famous. These are generally religious leaders or officials and government workers, those who owned the court system. Politicians, if you will. I don't know if we have any politicians in our midst, but generally back then... They were rich, and they oppressed the poor, both in Old Testament and New Testament. And the New Testament, the rich is always viewed in a negative sense. Although when Paul writes in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, I believe he speaks about the Christian rich. And they ought to think about the riches in a different way. But the rich here, as in the book of Proverbs, is always the ungodly rich. These Christians decided to elevate these ungodly, rich people who oppress God's people. James says, this is not wise. How do you not see this? These rich took advantage of the poor, especially in the legal system. Sometimes there would be no case to be made and they would take them to court because they know that they cannot win the court case, which means that they get enslaved to the rich for eternity. Or, I mean, you know what I mean. Not, not literally for eternity. For a long period of time. Because they cannot pay the debts back. 
And so they make up some story about the poor. They take them to court and the poor lose the case. And as they return payment for losing the case, they have to work for the rich until they die. They manipulated the court systems. It is interesting that this is in a court context. You see it in verse 2 through to 5, and you always also see it here in verse 6. Are they not the ones who drag you into court? James is saying, you are acting unwisely. You are choosing your oppressors. And again, this is not oppressors as in the woke understanding of oppressors, which is normally white people. This is the ungodly rich. Oppressors who will be judged by God, yet you chose the enemies of God as allies. That's foolish. Remember the theme of this book is faith that works through wise acts of righteousness. And clearly they are not acting wisely at this stage. The activity seems to contradict all that James confirms about the child of God. Not only do they oppress the poor, but also look at the middle of verse 6. Are the rich ones not the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? The word here, drag, has the idea of being threatened to enter a a legal um, uh, situation. It's when you are dragged away from your home to go give an account in a legal proceeding. It's what Paul did in Acts chapter, sorry, it's what happened to Paul in Acts chapter 16 and verse 19. But interestingly, it's what Paul did in Acts chapter 8, which is the context of this book. He dragged men and women before the Sanhedrin, which is the legal religious court, and tried to make them blaspheme. Hmm. So if you are trying to make somebody blaspheme, what are you? Blasphemer, right? There's a close connection between being dragged into court and being caused to blaspheme. Take a look at verse 6 again. Are not the rich ones the ones who, sorry, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Verse 7, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name? You can almost hear the tone of James. You, you dishonor God's people. But they, they the rich, the ungodly, the ones you honor, they oppress you. They the ones you end up in. They are the reason why you end up in court. If words had emotion, it would be something like, really? That's what James is saying. How inconsistent it is to despise your brothers and honor your enemies. That's extreme lunacy. But there's a greater problem that is revealed here. 
What we see is the danger of the implication of discrimination. The seeds of favoritism will manifest itself in inconsistent action which refers to wicked people. What James is saying is that when we do this, when we choose the side of the ungodly, it shows a lack of wisdom and moreover, a lack of genuine concern for those who belong to God. In, later on in chapter 2, you will see what he means by that. Why is this a problem? Why does James take the time to mention it? I will answer that question in a moment. So remember, why do you think he puts it in this book? Discrimination or favoritism deals with this denouncing your own to keep face with God's enemies. That is what James is talking about. They denounce their own people just so that they don't fall in the bad books with God's enemies. They have chosen sides. And it was not the side of God's people. They aligned themselves with the very people that oppressed them as Christians. That's foolishness. Just so that you would not go through persecution. That's foolishness. But notice what James says with regards to persecution and suffering. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. In other words, don't try to escape. Endure. Be steadfast. But there were Christians in this community who wanted a little bit of a breather. So if I give them over, I may not be persecuted. Christians here have aligned themselves with the ungodly culture so that they would find favor in the culture. But in so doing, they dishonor God and those whom God honors. First, there is a dishonoring of God and his people. And then secondly, there is an unwise preferential treatment of the ungodly who persecute them. Thirdly, choosing the ungodly is also choosing God haters. And it may sound like it's the same thing that I've just said, but it is slightly different. Look at verse 7. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you have been called or by which you were called? This is the third rhetorical question, and the answer to the question is yes. Now let me get back to that question. Why does James mention this in the book? Why is is it so bad that he has to write it in this letter at this stage, mentioning it to his audience? Well, listen to his question again. Are they, that is the rich, not the ones who blaspheme the honorable or the good name, I prefer honorable name, by which you were called? 
the level of intensity just turned up to full tilt. What James lays down here is the absolute foolishness of the activity. He shows that when the church chooses culture or the ungodly as, as allies, then they choose blasphemers over God's people. What is blasphemy? Blasphemy in general is just um, uh, injurious speech. But when it's used in a religious context, it is used to speak of those who say irreverent things, um, who are disrespectful of God and uh, about sacred uh, things. In Acts chapter 13, verse 35, blasphemy is used of a, just speaking in a demeaning way, just making somebody feel less than human. That's probably not in view here. In Acts chapter 26, however, if you want to turn there, just look with me. There's a different use of blasphemy. So the word can be used in two different ways. Just of speech that can cause injury to a person, but in the religious sense, it can be used of those who dishonor God. Look at Acts chapter 26, verse 11. Paul here gives his testimony. Verse 9. Now I myself was convicted that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. See the connection there. Opposition to the name. Are they not the ones who what? Oppose you? And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the, what, chief priests, religious leaders. But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. That is a legal system. The end result of that was death. I voted for them to die. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them what? Blaspheme. And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul gives a testimony of what he did to Christians. Acts chapter 8, following the very people that James is writing to. And what was one of the things that he tried to make them do? Blaspheme. That is dishonor the name of Christ. Making false proclamations or a reviling claim concerning Christ. Paul repeats this testimony in 1 Timothy 1 verse 13. From Paul's perspective. He acted both as an oppressor and a blasphemer, or the one that can cause blaspheming. So Paul, in his unbelieving state, says what James is stating here. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and blaspheme the name? It is the ungodly who oppress and blaspheme, not Christians. He's talking about an act which refers to those who do not belong to God and speak irreverently of sacred things. 
These are not Christians. And I know that there are those who believe that the rich in this context are merely misinformed Christians. I don't believe that this can be a Christian if he willfully, knowingly blasphemes the name and oppresses God's people. To James, this is the most unbelievable act. How can you, who have been brought near by the honorable name, to the honorable name of Christ, join hands with those who dishonor the honorable name of Christ? How can you choose their side over God's side? The language here is very interesting. If you look at this last uh, clause in verse 7, the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called, the noble name of him to which you belong, some translations say. I think the NIV says, the good name which has been called upon you. It's a very awkward uh, grammatical construction in, in uh, the original and some say there's a Semitic overtone here. Probable. But to have your name, a name called over you, implies ownership. So think about this. To have a name being called over the believer implies that the believer now belongs to the name that was called over that believer. What is the name that is mentioned here? I believe it relates to verse 1. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My beloveds, my beloveds, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold faith in our what? Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I believe that word the Lord is in view in verse 7. It is the Lord to whom you will bow. He returns to this aspect of lordship in chapter 4. But here, he starts this chapter by saying that if you claim to have faith in our Lord, then you cannot be partial. You cannot defer to ungodly people by choosing them over Christians. Now let's Consider this even further. If the name is Lord Jesus Christ, when is that name mentioned over the believer? There's a lot of suggestions that is taking place here. Some say, well, it's actually the name Christian because Christ is in the name Christian. So it's a Christ um, uh, follower, one who belongs to Christ. Eh, Possible, possible. The Hebrewism here that is expressed in this, the name that is called overview, over you, has the idea of when the believer is identified with that name. Can you think of an event that would signify the believer being identified with the Lord? What are you thinking of? Baptism. Yes. Listen to this again. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name which is called over you? The meaning is here, the meaning is to invoke a name over so as to show association and possession. 
So to have the name of the Lord be declared over the believer shows that he belongs to, be, to the believer and also associates with the Lord. If this is baptism, and I do believe that it is, then baptism is no small thing as some churches make it out to be. Oh, well, no. you know, we allow people to get baptized whenever they want to. It's just not a big thing. You know, when Christ will become Lord, then they can become baptized. Or, you know what? It's, it's actually based on the parents' faith. So it's not a big deal. So we just do it because this is what our church believes. Back then, if you associated with Christ, in the early church, if you were known to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you immediately entered the realm of persecution. To have the name declared over you, called over you, implies that you not only associate with him, but you are owned by him, which means you do not live your own life. That is what baptism declares, that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and I now will follow him faithfully, being willing to die for him. Buried with him, and raised in the newness of life. Do not think baptism to be a small thing. They blasphemed the name. The very people you chose to align yourselves, yourself with. You can see the problem, right? The implication that James draws out here for them. The dilemma that he lays before this church is that when a church bows to cultural pressure, when a church chooses ungodly people over God, his word, and his people, it stops obeying the Lord of glory. It stops acting the way that it should. When the church allows ungodly sinners to control the thing, the very thing that belongs to Christ himself, we have abandoned obedience to the word. When the church allows the values of the ungodly to guide Christians, we've handed our lives over to sinners. They have chosen the side of blasphemers and aligned themselves with enemies of God. This is the seriousness of what James is talking about. He shows the danger of those who align with culture rather than with Christ. In this young church, there were those who feared government. There were those who feared persecution. They abandoned saints just to be in good standing with culture. They were scared of being dragged into court and being sentenced to death for the name of Christ. Yet this is the very thing that we sign up for. This is not far removed from today. We may not be the first recipients of this letter. But we do have ungodly people trying to influence the church of Jesus Christ. And we do have churches that bows to external pressure. We do have churches that abandon the commands of Christ for the commands of government. We have Christians 
that rather wants to wave the, the, the flag of compliance than complying to the word of God. We have someone in our congregation who has fled his country because of persecution. Because of Christians giving up his name. This takes place when believers choose the ungodly over God. James shows the implication of the ongoing effects of favoritism, choosing the ungodly, favoritism of the ungodly. In this case, when we do that, when we favor the ungodly, when we give uh, precedence over their commands, over the command of Christ, we are affirming and choosing persecutors, blasphemers, the ungodly over God. Why is this important? Turn to Matthew chapter 10. I mentioned this quite a few times. James does not exactly quote the Gospels, but he does quote Jesus. In a variety of different ways, he uses phrases and words that is aligned with the sayings of Jesus. Now, why does he not quote the Gospel of Matthew or Mark, Luke, and John? Well, the simple reason is he's writing before they ever wrote. He precedes them in in history. So, he cannot quote what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, but he quotes what he has heard from Jesus or from those who were with him at this occasion. Listen to Matthew 10 verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will, what? Deliver you over to courts. Hmm, interesting. That's what's happening in the book of James. And flog you in their synagogues. James chapter 2, I believe it's verse 2. When a man walks into your what? Synagogue. James does not pick things for no reason. And will be dragged. What on earth? We read that word, right? Before governors and kings who in that time were what? Rich. For my sake. To bear witness before them and Gentiles. So the reason you are being dragged before these people is so that you would be my witnesses to them. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Look at 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death. Wow. The parallel is unquestionable. And father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for, uh, by all for what? My name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
when they persecute you in one town, actually, I'm going to stop there. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. I encourage you to go over, read that section again, and read James chapter 1 and chapter 2 together. And you will see the correlation that James makes here. What he's saying is, this is what we've been called to. This is what Christ told us about. We will be drawn out into synagogues, drawn before the courts, drawn out by the rich, ungodly sinners for his name's sake. And the reason that is this happening is so that we can be a witness for him. So what on earth are we doing? Why are we handing godly Christians over to the ungodly? James makes the point that it is for the name of Christ that this takes place. And it is the very name that sinners and ungodly rich uh, rulers profane. But the one thing that is consistent in verse 12 and in, verse, uh, in chapter 10 is that those who endure will be saved. Those who endure suffering, hardship, and affliction, they are the ones who are saved. Let's pray. O Sovereign King, our blessed God and Savior, Lord, our Lord, our hearts goes out to those who are treated harshly because of their faith. Our hearts goes out to those who have suffered for your name. We may be on the precipice of persecution. And some of us may be called upon to testify concerning our faith before ungodly people. Father, we pray that we would not take these words lightly that James writes about. How can we, who are yours, who hold faith in your Son, also be partial to your people? How can we discriminate against those whom you have chosen, those whom you have loved, those whom you have called by choosing ungodly people? Father, if your name has been called over us, we not only acknowledge your ownership of us, but also our association with you, which means, Lord, we are willingly declaring by open and public announcement that we belong to Jesus Christ, whether it's in the way that we meet as your people or whether we are outside, we declare our association with you and we are not ashamed of it. Father, we pray that you would cause us to endure when persecution comes, when we are dragged from this pulpit or from these pews before the ungodly to give an account of our conviction concerning Christ. We pray that we would be bold and endure. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the many opportunities you give to us to witness to witness concerning your name. And if it's through persecution, 
Help us to remain steadfast. We thank you again for your word. We pray that you would change us by means of it as we give glory to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.